fears the mind killer. My Lord Duke. Where the fear is gone, only I will remain. So, uh, things changed since my announcement uh, last week of what I was going to be covering this week. I've been planning to cover Dune for weeks, talking about it a lot, hyping it up, putting it on my uh, schedule for the coming months back in the summer and all of this. Little did I realize they changed the release date, so it's now not coming out till October 22nd. I think at some point it was coming out October 1st. It was scheduled or something like that. So this whole time I've been thinking that I was building up to it with the Denny Villeneuve uh, podcast, and lo and behold, it's it's not available for another few weeks. So I'm not going to cover that until um, at least November, maybe December even, because I have some other stuff I, I want to cover as new releases in the interim. Uh, primarily the Sopranos prequel, which I'm really curious to see. So I have a, a I may be doing a conversation on that with uh, another commentator. Still planning to talk to Max about uh, Dune, who I uh, the the person I talked to about uh, Blade Runner 2049, which was last week's episode. So all of that sort of in motion now, and I even have another idea about what I might like to cover as a new release uh, related to the film that I am going to cover this week which is Halloween. So that episode I was planning to put up around uh, the end of the month, around Halloween, and I thought, okay, well, if I'm shuffling all this stuff around, I, I should put that up now and then save the new release for a few weeks from now. So if there's a conversation around it, I have a little time to prepare it and so forth. So obviously no Dune, and uh, we're going to talk about Halloween instead, to get in the mood of the month, I guess, for the holiday. Now before we get to that, I uh, just want to update on the work I've been doing the past week. It's been a very, very busy week, uh, kind of nonstop working on some online stuff. So I launched my Lost in Twin Peaks feed on Friday. This is now a, another podcast feed, Lost in Twin Peaks. I'll link it below. And uh, what it is, is a daily podcast where every week I'm covering a different episode of Twin Peaks. No spoilers. So if you haven't seen the show you can listen to this. It's very in-depth, so if you don't mind uh, deep diving on your first viewing, you can do that. A lot of veteran viewers seem to really enjoy getting into the weeds with all of this. So uh, the way it works is on Friday, I put out my introductory episode, and then on Saturdays, I will every Saturday from now on, I put on an illustrated companion to that week of episodes. So in this case, the pilot episode of Twin Peaks. And uh, that companion has links to all the podcasts, but it also has illustrations. It has statistics for like the character rankings, um, pictures to go with everything, the Time Magazine cover that I talk about when I talk about historical context. Uh, it's a great companion, just like the title says, that you can actually even sort of scroll through as you're li listening to different parts of the podcast. So hopefully that's fun for people. And here are the individual episodes I released each day, starting on uh, so, again, we had introducing the podcast show format on Friday, and then starting on Saturday, Welcome to the Pilot, How Was Twin Peaks Created? Second episode is Pilot Mystery, Who Killed Laura Palmer? And then Pilot Subplots, What Is the Town Up To? And uh, yesterday posted Pilot Critics and Fans, How Did Viewers React? And today, uh, around the same time I'm publishing this, I'm publishing Pilot's Current Events, talking about what was on TV that evening that the pilot aired, what was 
the number one film at the box office that weekend, what were the current uh, news events of the day, the news stories, and then also what was uh, on the cover of Time magazine that weekend. What does that kind of tell us about that moment and everything? So this is a this one is a very short podcast, only about ten minutes. This particular episode uh, on the historical context. But as the podcast went along, because remember, I recorded all of this for patrons. It's all, all the material is there. I'm just dividing it up anew, which still takes some work. And uh, as, as I went along, those, that historical section got longer and longer and more detailed and into more sort of side tangents and stuff. So there's a lot going on in this podcast. I still have a few more episodes on the pilot to go up this week. Uh, great thing to follow if you're into Twin Peaks. So definitely want to send you that way. And also on my site, I posted uh, Mad Men for my Mad Men season six viewing diary, the episode uh, episode five, the flood, which is uh, the Martin Luther King assassination episode, which I found very compelling. I wrote about uh, that for my uh, weekly viewing diary. I also cross posted the Twin Peaks conversations, uh, the one that just went up with Dave Bushman, and the week before I forgot to mention is the Twin Peaks unwrapped. Um, I also did a cross post on my site, so you can find the uh, public YouTube and, and uh, private Patreon links both both there and uh, check those conversations out. It seems to have led to a huge spike in patrons for me in the past week or two. Um, quite a few, you know, I say huge, for just for, for my own, you know, purposes or whatever. Like it's not like dozens and dozens or something, but a, a good amount of people bumping up their uh, patron tier or joining for the first time. So, uh, welcome to all those people. And if you're listening and you've thought about it, now's a great time to join. Patreon.com slash Lost in the Movies. After I discuss Halloween, I'm going to read some feedback and some other sections I did, just short little, you know, 30 second sections here or there from a patron podcast discussing this episode or the film, other people's discussions of it, and so forth. So let's go forward with Halloween. And, uh, At the end of the episode, I'll save it till the end, even though it's not about this particular subject, I'm going to read some feedback from uh, Jack the Fate on Twitter, who shared some thoughts with me about Blade Runner 2049, my previous episode. So that's uh, good to hear back from listeners. Um, Another thing I encourage you to do if you're enjoying or have something, some thoughts on something I cover, uh, send me some feedback and I'll discuss it on these episodes. And as always, please... Uh, rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, here is Halloween. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. Totally charted. Just 
I love the opening of this film with just a slow push into a jack-o'-lantern with the titles popping up next to it as that unforgettable theme music plays. You know, that this is a film 83 years into the history of movies, which can just boldly take the title Halloween. Like it hadn't, you know, I think there had been a couple films with that title before, but nothing that stood out enough that this film couldn't take it. So that's great. And then to just open with that, that on the nose and yet so distinctive uh, iconography. I, I love it. With Halloween, I think probably the most effective part of it, uh, well, I don't know, not necessarily because a lot of the nighttime scenes are great, but the fact that they show Michael Myers in the daytime kind of stalking these characters and standing in the background, like the shot of him standing next to a bush, I think, many people many viewers recognize as one of just the most unsettling scary shots in a horror film because it's just so plain and out there and i love the daytime horror aspect of halloween now of course a lot of the film is set at night and and those parts are effective in their own way the shot of him ripping into the closet to me is just is right there in my imagination with like jaws you know and the the shark coming onto the ship and and but it's it's the same idea of like a killer where it's not supposed to be where you're supposed to be safe from it and you're not and that primal terrifying idea so halloween if it needs a plot summary is the story of uh well it's really the story of laurie strode played by jamie lee curtis and uh you know well not coincidentally i guess it was part of the reason she was cast but she's the daughter of janet lee who, of course, plays Marion Crane in Psycho. And uh, John Carpenter was kind of aware of that when he cast her and thought, oh, that would be interesting kind of buzz for the movie. But it is perfect that these two sort of generations of horror films are straddled by the mother and daughter. And, of course, Laurie ends up uh, much, much better off than Marion does in Psycho. And actually, those two films have an interesting relationship, which I'll address in a moment. But to get to the plot summary, so the film begins with a point-of-view shot watching... These two teenagers in 1963, and uh, this guy kind of comes into the house and is hanging out with the sister, hooking up with her of, uh, you know, Mike, the sis, not his sister, but the sister of Michael Myers, the this six-year-old kid who's watching them uh, through, you know, out the window and following around. And so she goes upstairs with the boyfriend, and later he leaves, and the camera goes upstairs, grabs a knife, goes upstairs, and it stabs the girl to death and comes outside with uh you know it's wearing a mask a clown mask at this point and the parents run up and they go what's michael michael and they pull the face off and he's standing there with a knife and then finally it re- you know it reveals him this little kid and the camera pulls back and you see that that whole scene so 15 years later there uh you know it's the same neighborhood the myers house is now completely decrepit nobody wants to live there and uh Laurie, is walking around this this teenage girl talking to her friends and she drops something off her father I think is a real estate agent so she drops off like a key or something at the Myers house and who is watching her but Michael Myers so rewind for a moment you know we see a scene with Dr. Loomis this psychiatrist who's insistent that they're uh, you know they're going to have a parole hearing the next day or 
it's not just, I, I don't know what the uh, proper term is for, you know, when somebody is institutionalized, it's not a parole hearing per se, or I don't think. Uh, but anyways, they're going to have a hearing where they're going to see if Michael can be released. And he's insistent, we, we must give him some drugs so that he won't be released. Kind of a terrible ethical lapse if you think about it. Although in the context of the movie, you know, you're not too worried about that. So they get to the hospital. Everybody's roaming around. And one of the patients jumps on the car. It's obviously Michael Myers. And, uh, and uh, takes it over, chases the nurse out and drives away. So now Loomis is following this killer around. And that's where these... You know, these two sort of settings coincide of Laurie having a normal day, going to school, talking to her friends about boys. She's got a babysitting gig for the night where she's, you know, babysitting this this little boy and her friend is babysitting a girl across the street. The other babysitter wants to hook up with her boyfriend, so she sends the girl over for uh, Laurie to look after. And Laurie is kind of the responsible one. She also is shown to be more sexually romantically repressed one she's frightened to ask a boy to the dance and of course that becomes a trope that plays out in many horror films where it's like the more virginal character is spared while the sexually active characters are all massacred and slaughtered by the killer and sure enough in this film she is the one who survives she's the final girl who survives to the end of the movie kind of takes out michael myers actually takes him out twice first with a like a knitting needle and then once with a knife and then he pops up again and Loomis comes in and shoots him. And the end of the film is great. I totally forgot this was how it ended. Loomis shoots Michael Myers several times. He goes flying out the window, lands in the yard, obviously killed. And then him and Laurie exchange some words. Says something like, what's up the boogeyman? And he says, as a matter of fact, it was. And then he turns and he looks again at the yard and Michael Myers is gone. And the music picks up again, that brilliant simple score by john carpenter himself and we see the empty yard we see the house we hear heavy breathing on the soundtrack we see the different rooms we see different houses and this is totally like a metaphysical horror embodied in in a human but you know it's it's inhuman they emphasize that throughout the film loomis keeps talking about how he, he's pure evil he's nothing else in the credits he's not even listed as michael myers he's listed as the shape and of course the way they have looked they briefly unmask him in the film but for the most part, he's wearing this white mask that, uh, as it turns out, was a Captain Kirk mask in which a few minor alterations were made, but mainly it was just painted white. And that has now become one of the iconic images of horror, along with Freddy Krueger's burnt up face and uh, the Scream mask based on Edward Munch. And uh, what's the other one? Oh, of course, the hockey mask for Jason on Friday the 13th, which is, I guess, at this point... The only one of the major, major slashers that I've never, I've still never seen a Friday the 13th movie, as, as crazy as that might sound. And I've actually only seen this first Halloween film. I haven't seen any of the sequels, except I was once in a restaurant on Halloween, and I think they were playing Halloween 3 on the TV, but it was really weird. It wasn't like a suburban horror film with Michael Myers stalking teenagers. It was like, as I recall, you know, I looked on the Wikipedia to confirm this, and it didn't really confirm it, so... Now I'm wondering, but as I recall, it was a it had like a, like a black family in the city, and uh, one of them was at work, and then he went home or something. I saw it, but I wasn't really watching it. 
Um, and that didn't sound like the summary on the Wikipedia, so maybe I'm I'm wrong, but they were talking more about like a small town and a mask store. And apparently with that third film, the idea was that uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who wrote the film with him, they thought, okay, so the first movie is called Halloween. So this will be like an anthology series. Every film will be a different Halloween story. Now they'd already made Halloween 2, which is a continuation of the first Halloween. So I guess they'd already set their turf and they couldn't move away from it, but people really wanted more Michael Myers. So I guess this film was season, it's called uh, Season of the Witch. That's the subtitle for Halloween 3. It was really unpopular and they went on to just return to the Michael Myers and keep milking that. And of course, they made H2O. They've rebooted this series. That's something that's interesting to me is you see these series get, you know, these horror series, they kind of run their course the sequels turn make less and less of a profit. They come out more infrequently. Maybe they're straight to video. They kind of die off. And then it's like, well, now that generation that grew up watching this, they're like middle-aged or whatever. And now they're going to they're gonna come back and see this film again. Now it's like a classic that we can revive. But they did that several times with Halloween. So first was H2O in uh, 1998, which was the 20th anniversary. And I was in junior high, I think. I do remember that film coming out and that being like, oh yeah, let's go see Halloween, you know, for a generation that now was watching Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer and all of that. This was like, let's return to the iconic classic Halloween. It was no longer this tired, dated concept that had run its course. Now it was in a frame as a classic that we can return to. And that had Jamie Lee Curtis in it. And it was like 20 years after the events of Halloween. So it had a high concept. And then the next stage of reboot was in... 2006 or 7 when torture horror films were uh, were all the rage and there was definitely a big horror revival in the mid mid 2000s and Rob Zombie made a Halloween remake and then he did like a sequel to that in a in a sort of a different mode so that was like a new generation's Halloween in 2018 40 years after Halloween they've done another sequel which i guess its concept from what i've read of it is it acts as if Halloween 2 never happened. And it just follows from the first Halloween film. It's like an alternate universe sequel to Halloween, which is a really cool concept. Directed by David Gordon Green. There was a big deal made of the fact that it was a huge uh, box office hit. So Jamie Lee Curtis was tweeting excitedly about it. This was like the biggest opening for, uh, I think, maybe an actress over 50 or something. There were there was records that broke or new milestones that it established. Conservatives took it as like a cause celebrity that this film made so much money because it beat the Neil Armstrong biopic at the box office by Damien Chazelle, First Man. And apparently they hate this film because it doesn't have a shot of Neil Armstrong planting the American flag on the moon. So this has become like the evil uh, left-wing Hollywood propaganda stripping America and and American nationalism from its central place in uh, the moon landing. So they decided they hated this film, that it was an anti-conservative film, and they celebrated that Halloween had crushed it at the box office, where they had this meme of like Michael Myers in a mask with a knife versus Neil Armstrong in his astronaut's uniform as the first man to walk on the moon, and they're like mocking the fact that it made so little money. I mean, at the time, I just thought it was funny because it's like, great, so you're taking this slasher film as your avatar of the conservative movement cutting down Neil Armstrong as an enemy of conservatism so you can celebrate Michael Myers. With Halloween, the striking thing about it, I think, from this standpoint now, 40 years down the road, 
is how pared down. It's like the pure distillation of the slasher genre. I looked at some of the reviews and it's like Pauline Kael, for example, just was totally dismissive. And, and most critics, not most, I, I think some really liked it, but they saw it as a regurgitation of all these tropes that already exist, which is funny looking back because now we see it more as a beginning point. One of the first films, and I'd be interested to hear from people who are much more horror aficionados than I am of films that precede this, not as slasher films, like not like Texas chainsaw massacre where it's like you know a a psycho killer killing a bunch of people but actually the specific idea of high school students in suburbia being chased by this strange oddball killer friday the 13th fits that mode nightmare on elm street fits that mode halloween feels like it invents that mode a contrast nightmare on elm street is helpful here like i almost look at it this is a funny comparison to make but i almost look at it like disney versus looney tunes disney set this sort of animation template and then Looney Tunes riffs on it and goes off into strange directions with it. And I think a lot of people prefer Looney Tunes for that. And I can kind of understand that. But there's also something powerful about that iconic establishment of something where, you know, I think of Star Wars that way too. The first Star Wars, this just sets the mode for this type of blockbuster. Everything else is following in its footsteps. There's something amazing about that if you can get into the mindset of seeing this for the first time. And Halloween is very much like that. The no-frills version of Nightmare on Elm Street, where with that film you have this whole elaborate myth you have these crazy cool sequences where it's got all this lavish set design and high concept stuff freddy krueger himself is you know overflowing with personality and this this whole elaborate look where he's got the hands he's got the shirt with the stripes he's got the hat he's got the face he has the funny one-liners halloween is this totally stripped down version of that where it's like simple killer as it could be oh he killed his sister when he was six and he's pure evil incarnate that's what he is and then he wears like this white mask around and just stands there and stares and stabs a few people very pared down simplistic but i kind of like it for that i kind of like this elemental feature it's like having a very satisfying meat meat and potatoes type meal it's also interesting that some of the idiosyncrasies and the fact that it is that kind of pared down that it almost feels like hey we can have a story of this killer stalking these babysitters and we don't need more than that that's enough you know there's there's almost like a, a charming and if that's the right word to use for uh, you know a slasher horror film but uh, you know the killings take up very very little time in this film there's only four people or three people killed and uh, i don't think any of them dies for the first like well other than his sister for the first like hour and a half or so uh, and of course it's filmed remarkably well carpenter's a great director that opening sequence is the part of the film where it most makes a claim for technical virtuosity or whatever we have this one shot of the character from his point of view. Of course, the twist is that it's a little kid. I think I knew that going in, but that's the shocker is you're seeing this person watching, following, and, you know, she says, the sister says something like, oh, well, Michael, Michael's not here. And then she calls him Michael. So you know it's somebody, but you don't necessarily know it's a little kid. And that's the twist at the end of the sequence, which is brilliant. Something so obvious, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, I didn't pick up on. Okay, so he just killed his sister, just likes to kill people, and there's some sort of sexual component to it because she goes upstairs and sleeps with this guy. Uh, Somebody pointed out, I think it might have even been on the Wikipedia page, well, the obvious thing is this is his revenge for her not watching him. And then he reenacts this with the other babysitters when they're not watching the kids. They call him the shape in the credits for this movie, but of course the name of the character is Michael Myers. You see patterns like this sometimes, like Friday the 13th, Jason, is the big villain but i think the first film it's his mother or something he doesn't even come into it they they bring him in later with halloween it's the shape in this and then of course he becomes known as michael myers so incidentally apparently the actor who played him 
directed the 90s version of Dennis the Menace. And it kind of puts the whole Christopher Lloyd subplot of that in a new light where for no apparent reason they introduce this dark spooky character who's like a drifter who comes into the town. Ghoulish character who I think is trying to like kill Dennis the Menace at some point. And I think Roger Ebert put that in his review like why do they need to add this violent villainous character to a fun kids movie? Uh, but maybe it was the director channeling his former character. He also directed The, Le- the Last uh, Starfighter, which I haven't seen, probably should have. I guess in closing, I mentioned I wanted to bring up Psycho. That's a film where, in some ways, that establishes the slasher genre, in a, in a sense. Uh, certainly the shower scene with Marion. But what interests me about the dynamic of that film is you have the first half where it's all about Marion. She's our protagonist, and then she's killed. And then from then on, we focus, we split our focus between the killer, who we don't know, of course, is the killer yet, and the detective looking for her and her family. And you kind of see that dynamic a little in this movie where you have the the psychiatrist looking for Michael and he's the only one who knows how to stop him and he's the hero in that sense. And yet we're spending more than half the movie with Laurie, who is the potential victim here. Really, she is functionally the protagonist of the movie, but it's interesting that they have Loomis in there anyways. And supposedly Carpenter wrote his parts and Hill wrote the Laurie parts, focused more on those based on her own teenage years. Not being chased by a killer, but, you know, the, just the normal conversations and stuff. And I just find that interesting that I think the Loomis character belongs to, like, an older genre of horror where you have this sort of official older male figure who is the authority and he's there to stop the evil force in the world and then with Laurie you have the newer mode of horror where it is more often about these teenagers that the the viewers can really relate to going back to the 50s the blob is a good early example of that these teenagers fighting the the monster or whatever that's even more so a mode after this movie came out and so it feels like the cross-section of that like older and newer horror in some ways I I find that compelling. Two genres clashing together. And Donald Pleasance, I enjoy his performance in this. It's such a strange character in a way. Like he's standing outside this house yelling at little children to scare them away. What's he going to do if Michael Myers comes there? He knows he's a homicidal maniac. I mean, I guess he has his gun, so he's waiting to shoot him. It's just such an odd conceit that he comes to this town and he's just stalking around trying to find this this guy. So I find that amusing. But most of all, I just find it interesting that it's almost a handing off of the baton from the Donald Pleasance character mode of horror films to the Jamie Lee Curtis mode of horror films. So now for some feedback on this film that I received from patrons when I originally reviewed it for the 40th anniversary. I asked at that time uh, as a sort of a provocation for a dramatic word there, but an invitation, let's say, for listeners. I asked, what was your favorite horror film? And people wrote in a couple, got a couple of responses here. And of course, I want to put out this moment, anyone listening to this now, the public podcast, same thing. This is the beginning of October. We got all month. Send me your favorite horror films. Tell me what they are. Tell me why. And I will read them on the podcast. I look forward to that. Hopefully, I'll have a few for the next one. So here was the first listener sharing their favorite horror film. For listener feedback this week, I didn't receive too many uh, messages. In fact, I only received one about favorite horror films, which I asked about last week. So I will read that one. So Willie wrote, In a boring response, The Shining is my favorite horror film as well. The psychological terror of the story, combined with layers of connectivity and keeping exposition to a bare minimum, adds up to the greatest horror film I've seen. Really love Hereditary from earlier this year. Need to see it again to see how it holds up with multiple viewings. 
And then here was another listener talking about their favorite horror film in a little more detail here. Jeff left a comment on the Halloween podcast saying, I'm a week behind on your podcast, so I couldn't offer my horror film pick in time for Halloween. Sorry. For what it's worth, I'd nominate the 1979 U.S. film Phantasm, directed by Don Coscarelli. A very low-budget horror B-movie of the sort that was, and I believe still is, commonly produced by budding filmmakers, but it stands above others of its type for the way it leans into the humor of its low-budget cheesiness, without becoming a pastiche, and even more for how it successfully creates an eerie, dreamlike atmosphere despite its limitations. The John Carpenter-esque score is marvelous and memorable, and the spooky tall man is one of the all-time great cult horror movie villains. Boy, I don't know what that means. It just says, uh, that's the line, I guess. It's also one of the horror films I've sat through, the only horror films I've sat through at the cinema at a special screening a couple years ago, because I really don't like the genre very much. I scare easily. And then we get, of course, as always, to the Twin Peaks connections. Here, someone wrote in a very small connection they saw between Halloween and Firewalk with me. No spoilers, don't worry. So uh, if you haven't seen Twin Peaks, you can keep listening. And more feedback for uh, episode 43, which was the Halloween, uh, you know, episode where I shared uh, my, you know, um, uh, uh, some other feedback about about favorite horror films. I think I only had one at that point. Uh, seven slash Andrew to go by seven on Patreon site wrote, I don't know if this is mentioned in the four ways firewalk in the essay, but the shot of Mike and Bobby where they say Mike is the man is almost certainly lifted from Halloween. My friends and I happened to watch the two films back-to-back one afternoon, and our jaws literally dropped. I think the Halloween scene is introducing those characters and everything. So that's something I'd like to hear a little more about that. I think um, I saw somebody reference a connection between Halloween and Firewalk With Me on Twitter uh, with that specific scene. Um, Actually, it might have been Andrew on on Twitter, but um, I think connected to, you know, the idea of, like, Michael... Michael uh, Myers and Mike, the the kid, the the you know the student Mike Nelson, um, or maybe it was something else. I'm not sure. So give give me a little more on that. I'd like to I'd like to hear more on that connection. And here was a follow up to that comment. I also received an email from Andrew talking about uh, Halloween. He had mentioned the idea of somehow that Lynch maybe was referencing that movie. Uh, He writes, as further info on the Mike is the Man shot and its connection to Halloween, I think it's just a visual shout-out, an acknowledgement of Firewalk and the similarity to more conventional horror movies. If I find a way to provide a side-by-side presentation of the two shots, I'll send it your way. I also recommended a podcast. I always do podcast recommendations uh, on my own podcast, kind of meta. Uh, Many hundreds of podcasts at this point that I've recommended over the past few years, and this one happened to be about Halloween. And then Move Left Idiots did an episode called Movie Left, Halloween 1978 and Halloween 2 1981, in which they talk about the first two Halloween films. I actually haven't seen the second one, or I guess I did, but I've seen part of it on TV where they're in a hospital and somebody gets like fried in a hot tub and stuff. They have a lot of fun. They go in depth. One of them's a big John Carpenter fan. Um, and that's the one where I listened to it. I was like, oh, crap, I mispronounced, uh, I misspoke about uh, um is it Deborah Hill? Now, now I'm forgetting again. Yes, Deborah Hill. 
uh and i i <laughs> called her karen hill which is the goodfellas character so listening to this was what made me realize oh god put that correction up in a later episode but yeah they they go into the whole uh michael myers and the different films they it's not just halloween halloween too they do talk about uh halloween three season of the witch and some of the later halloween films i think um you know they kind of touch on them so that that was fun after I recorded my own episode to go listen to that. And finally, I drew my own connection to uh, Fire Walk With Me when I was discussing the idea of the Twin Peaks prequel as a horror film and uh, the iconography that it draws upon. I wrote a whole essay called Four Ways to Watch Fire Walk With Me where I talk about it as a horror film, as an art film, as a Twin Peaks episode, and as a David Lynch film. I'll link that in the show notes so you can check that out. I, I really like that piece. Uh, it was a long time in development, but when I finally published it, uh, I talked about it on my uh, patron podcast, and then I had a little aside about Halloween because I hadn't mentioned it in the essay, even though I do feel like there's a connection there. As I said, I want to kind of bleed into the next Film and Focus review by talking about Firewalk with Me and its similarity to Halloween. That's not something I really discuss at all in the essay, except I, I think I briefly mentioned it, but... This Firewalk with Me really, as a horror film, it really taps into the mode kind of established by uh, Halloween, even to the point where just the shots of the character, you know, I mentioned this in reference to Nightmare on Elm Street 4 too, which is probably drawing on the same source, but this this teenage girl, high school student walking down the street with like her books, you know, they're not wearing a backpack, they're just carrying like these books and talking to their friend and joking around, but there's a kind of a menace in the neighborhood. And of course, Halloween, you know, they the, the menace isn't just suggested, it's shown. That's it for Halloween. As I hinted at at the beginning of the podcast, I'm thinking about maybe seeing the sequel from a few years ago and also the one that's in theaters right now and making that my first uh, new release. Maybe interesting to do, but uh, we'll see. I, I also do want to cover the Sopranos film sometime soon, so... Uh, we'll see whatever works for that. So here are the comments that uh, the user at Jack the Fate sent me on uh, Twitter talking about Blade Runner 2049. He said, I've watched it three times. Liked it the first time, loved it the second, thought it was a masterpiece the third. The thought I had got covered in the pod when someone suggested Joy may be able to grow beyond her programming. I posit that she does, which is a precursor to Kay doing exactly the same thing. In the end, the film makes a very hopeful statement, which is that no being capable of cognition can be programmed and controlled, and failing to see that is a form of blindness. Ahem, I think, pointing to some of the current political contexts. Continues, even Love was acting from her own initiative, except her prerogative was to serve Wallace the best of any replicant. I'm the best one. What is fascinating about the fact that Villeneuve's next film is Dune is that the universe is basically the perfect polar opposite of the Blade Runner universe, a world where any attempt whatsoever to mimic human thought artificially was outlawed thousands of years ago. So that is very interesting. I didn't know or remember that about Dune, that that was part of its lore. So definitely still looking forward to seeing that film. But uh, like I said, I think next month at the earliest at this point, which, which is good because it gives more time to uh, arrange a conversation around it and and all of that. So more stuff in store because I don't know exactly what the next episode will be. I don't have a preview in store 
but uh, since it may be Sopranos, let's play a little of the Sopranos music to get us in the mood for that now or later. Uh-huh. 